You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. It's that time of the week again. It's Thursday morning. It is. And but not for you. No. It's probably Monday for you. Hopefully you're listening to this podcast the day it comes out. If not, what do you? What else are you doing Mondays? Let us know. Yeah. Because if it's something less important than listening to us, then... Well, we at least we know where your priorities are. Yeah, we, maybe we could come up with like a new life plan and mm-hmm. schedule and stuff. Yeah. Um, but I'm Grace. And I'm Chelsea. And you're listening to... The Good Evening Girls. No. And our podcast, <laughs> Two Girls, One Crossword. That worked still. Okay, it worked. It was fine. <laughs> um, yeah, your weekly crossword podcast. Yeah. We struggle with the opening, I think. I kind of like it, though. It'd be weird if we were like, and good morning, everyone. You're listening to Two Girls in the Morning, and then all these weird sound effects. (laughs) Tony, can you put in weird radio sound effects now? Please. Tony? She's editing our podcast this week. Yeah. Um, Shout out to Tony. And shout out to Matt. Who are two editors. Yeah. They're cool. You guys should know who they are. We tag them a lot in our Instagram posts. So go stalk them. But not really. It's just Instagram stalk them. It's not illegal to do that yes you're allowed to look at people's instagrams okay <laughs> chelsea <laughs> um should we get into our corrections corner I, I don't mean you have a correction. i don't corner? have a correction but i do have a follow-up from last week remember i was questioning what that one question was that was like a body part that theoretically could be racist but almost never is yes it was bone and i think it comes from the term like there's not a racist bone in his body oh i think it definitely is bone and was that like, theoretically could be the thing was, but like, never is because I was like, well, he doesn't have a racist bone in his body. I don't know. That's what I, how I interpreted it. Um, okay, I couldn't well, find anything online. Other, apparently, other people weren't stumped by it. So, just, just us. me <laughs> and Chelsea. Yeah, uh, yeah, cool. So that's that. Um, I wanna. I have one small corrections corner. Although Nicole told me it's not necessarily a corrections corner, but I feel like I was betrayed by her. <laughs> Nicole is the voice inside Chelsea's head. <laughs> So she calls her alter ego. Yeah. Um, so I was telling you guys about like the WWE faction or the wrestling faction called the Four Horsemen yeah. at the end of last our last segment. And I listed five names. Yeah. Um, one of the names, J.J. Dillon. He's not actually in the like core Four Horsemen. He's like one of their friends because like they have like a crew apparently. Um, and the crew is like in all of their storylines and stuff like that. So he's in, like, their faction, but he's not one of the four. He's not a horseman. He's just a man of the apocalypse. Yes, he is. He just kind of, like, hangs out. He's like, can I, like, get you guys anything? <laughs> you know. Speaking of horsemen, I put a poll on our Twitter asking people to, like, pick which horse they are, and I picked death. And then I was looking at it, and it was, like, 100% death. I'm like, oh, man, no one's voting. But, like, five people voted. Everyone just picked death. <laughs> So that's our listeners, yes. our listener base. We love it. Um, death is the coolest one, though. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for voting. Yeah. I want to do more polls. I love polls. She she does like polls. All types of polls. <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> that you like polls. I'm just saying. Shall we go into our hits and shits? We I don't do have any shits, really. I have a wide spattering. Okay. You, you start. Okay. You so I want to talk about... So, when I was, like, going through the crosswords, because we take pictures of the crosswords to kind of, like, go back and we make notes on them sometimes or, like, circle clues that we like or don't like. We go over them every night before we go to bed. We do. Just, to, like, memorize every single clue. Yeah. Um, so I was looking at the incubator crossword from September 26th. That was Thursday. First of all, it was funny to look at because we did a shit ton of math on it to figure out there was a clue 42 across the year of Super Bowl XX 
XVII, which turns out to be Super Bowl 38. We were trying to do a ton of math to figure out which Super Bowl that would have been. And so it's just funny to see like all the math on the in the margins, plus all of us trying to figure out what Roman numerals equal what. Because no matter how many crosswords we do, neither Grace or I have memorized what the freaking Roman Roman numerals. I know are. like the basics, but once you start getting to like the thousands, I don't know. Right. No. Like, I know that four is one B. Right. Exactly. You know, so I know that part, but so here's here's the here's the kicker. So as I was doing this, I the answer was two thousand and four. So Super Bowl thirty eight happened in two thousand and four, and the answer that we had in the puzzle, and maybe we're effed up and wrong, was M M I I I, which would be two thousand and three. But the answer is 2004, so the, it actually was in 2004, the Super Bowl. And that answer would have been MMIV, so one number short of five. five. Yeah. So four numbers instead of five. And I don't know if it's because I don't understand how the Super Bowl years work, but Google told me that Super Bowl 38 happened in 2004, and 2004 in Roman numerals is MMIV. So you double-check the Roman numerals? Mm-hmm. Interesting. But the the puzzle wanted M-M-I-I-I, I believe, 2003. Hmm. So either well, the puzzle's wrong or we're wrong. More likely we're wrong. Yeah, because we don't know anything about sports. Or Roman numerals. So <laughs> anyway, that was just what I did last night when I was putting this together. <laughs> In a state of, like, mania. You have, <laughs> yeah, like, I was like, <gasps> you're drawing, writing all over your windows like a beautiful mind. <laughs> Like the the it's, it's always sunny. Two thousand four, yeah. The always sunny picture with Charlie like pointing in the mailroom. Love it, yeah. So that's what I have to say about the incubator. Do you have anything you want to add? No, no. Okay. As far not as far oh, as sure, sure, sure. Go. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, a hit. Well, there's just some clues that I liked. Uh, New York Times on Monday by Lynn Lempel, like some bagels and newlyweds, and the answer was toasted. Nice. <laughs> I just thought it was cute. Yeah, I like that too. I actually had. A couple things from that puzzle. So it was fun to see from that the Lynn Lempel puzzle 34A winners two-finger gesture was V-Sign. Oh, yeah. It's always – I like it when we see topics that we've covered in the thing. Right, especially something like V-Sign. I feel like I had never seen V-Sign before or hadn't noticed it before. And then I did the, the topic and now it's popped up again, so it's fun. Yeah. Um, neither of us liked this one, 17D. Uh, Seventeen down. Oh, right. Women whose woman whose name is an anagram for Myra, and the answer is Irma. And it's just like, what kind of clue was that? They also did another one that was Adam's Madam, which is Eve. Right. And there's there's just this trend in the New York Times crossword where any answer that's like a woman's name, it's never after an actual woman. Right. It's always just like some, some sort of like yeah. catchy like oh an anagram of this or Adam's. Like, ownership it's, over yeah. e- of Eve. And it's like... It's never what? a proper noun. Like, uh, n- usually male names in the crossword get, like, some celebrity or historical person as the clue. Yes. But women is always like, uh, if you switch these letters around, it spells another women's name. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really, <laughs> really dumb. editor, or this is a, I'm assuming Lynn Lempel. Is a woman, but woman. the cluing is not... Yeah. They, Will Shorts has said that he changes, like, half of the... The clues. The clues. So... So thanks, Will. Yeah. For nothing. Appreciate you. (laughs) Not. Um, Okay. So I wanted to note Thursday's puzzle, New York Times. Apparently, this was September 26th. Um, Apparently, um, if you got the actual physical copy of the New York Times paper, the puzzle 
in the paper was not the correct puzzle, apparently. Was that the engagement ring one? Right. So the engagement ring one was the correct one. And the reason why we did the engagement ring one. Oh, because we, we printed it we out. We printed it out from online. I was like, we usually, because we usually just do it right from the newspaper. And if we, for whatever reason, if the newspaper doesn't come, we'll print it out from online. And it must not have arrived that day because we printed it out, did the engagement ring puzzle. Um, but yeah, people were saying that a puzzle by uh, Randolph Ross was included in the paper, but the puzzle by Doug Peterson was the correct puzzle. How and does that happen? I don't know how that happens, and I don't know. It's very strange, And um, but New York Times said, like, write to them, and you can get the correct PDF version of the puzzle. So I just wanted to note that. That was funny. Mm, Has this happened before? They made a mistake. Uh, nice going, Will Short. <laughs> Looks like your time is up. <laughs> Pack your bags. Okay. I want to talk about the Saturday one. Okay. So Saturday, September 28th, New York Times, Alec East, Easton Salners, or Eaton Salners, excuse me. The grid was really fun. That was the swirl grid, which the I really snail shell? Yes. Actually, funny you should say that because 16 down was sweet treat depicted in this puzzle's grid, and the answer is Swiss roll. And then 35 across was placed to buy a 16D um, patisserie. So that was fun. That's cute. <clears throat> Um, I love that. I love when they have cool shapes. Yeah, the shapes are fun. It's like, um, how do you do that? <laughs> you're so smart! Um, and it, I, like, love food-related things. You do? Puzzles, so I was really excited. I would never have pegged that for you. Yeah. Also, 40 down in that puzzle was NSFW, and the answer was lewd. So that was cool, too. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. That's not safe for work for all you non-internet people. Yes. I doubt you're listening to the podcast. <laughs> right, if you're like, not. What's a podcast? In- yeah. I only listen to 103 in the morning. <laughs> uh, what is what did we have? We had the B and B or something in the morning, and it was like hits of today's 2000s or something. No, we don't have the same radio stations growing up. Oh yeah, I had okay. uh, no. No one cares. I don't. I can't remember. Do you have <laughs> any more hits and shits? Oh, Y100. Um, no. Okay. None. One last thing. So Sunday, September 29th, New York Times by Tom McCoy. Um, I wanted to bring this up. 18 across, end of April, or end of oyster season, and the answer was April. And I wanted to bring this up because we'd had an oyster clue before. And remember Tony, she remembered, like, that saying, like, oh, you can't eat oysters in months with R's or something. And Yeah. And I thought that was fun, so I kind of looked into it a little bit. And this is actually a topic that I would have really liked to do if I had thought about it. Um, but you don't think. That's the problem. You I don't think. I don't think. Um, so you can't, so the adage goes, eat raw oysters only in months containing the letter R, which would be January, February, March, April, October, November, December, which is basically none of the summer months. Um, this is not true because that started as a way to be like, don't eat oyster, raw oysters in the summer because they, because they, um, spoil faster and like in the winter they don't, so... Oh. But now that we have, like, refrigeration and things, like, it's not necessarily a problem. I eat oysters year-round, baby, every morning. Do Throw it. Throw them back. Do it, do it, baby. It's good for you. And that's that's That's, that's that. that on that. <laughs> that's that on that. Uh, okay. Should we go into our topics then? We should go into our topics then. Shall I flip flip the coin? Flip it, baby. You think you're going to you think you're gonna go first again, kid? I don't know. Tails. Oh, it is me. It's Grace Ella. For those who didn't listen to our last episode, first of all, bah humbug. Second of all, yeah. Um, first of all, we hate you. <laughs> second of all, we had for the first time ever on Two Girls One Crossword, we had the exact same topic, and we didn't know. 
So we kind of, well, Grace was harassing me over text about my topic this week because she really didn't want to have the same topic as me. And then she ended up using this, the same puzzle that I got my topic from anyway. I know. I was like, did you take yours from the, like, Friday New York Times? You're like, no, I got it from the AV crossword. And so then I went to go look at it, and I was like, oh, that's a good topic. Yeah. <laughs> um, hold on. I went, I got mine from the incubator. Is oh, that sorry, right? the incubator is what I'm looking for. I couldn't download it to my pictures. Oh, that's strange. Do you need me to pull it up? No. This is very boring for everyone listening to us. Well, I mean... We can cut this out. Did anybody have any (laughs) dreams lately? Which dream? Okay. Here we go. This is from the Incubator Crossword on September 26, 2019 from Patty Verrill. And my clue was 25 across. You're Gucci. Uh, (laughs) Like the Botany Bay Colony. And the answer was penal. Oh, nice. Penal. Penal. There we go. I should have probably figured out how to pronounce that because that's like my entire topic. Um, yeah. So my topic is convicts being sent to Australia. I love this so much. I love history topics. She was like, my topic's really history. Is yours like histor- historical? And I'm like, kind of, but not really. She's like, but mine really is. And I'm like, oh. I was like, yeah, it's not. It's okay. not mine. Okay. Um, so let's take it way back to the early 17th Please century. Take me back. Take me back. The British government was shipping all of their convicts to America. But then there was a little thing called the American Revolution in the 1760s, and they couldn't do that anymore. So they had to find someplace else to ship their convicts, as you do. Drats. The problem was that, um, like, London was, and just Britain in general, was so crowded, and their prisons were overcrowded. They were using old hulks, which are, like, ships from the Seven Years' War, to make floating prisons. Like, they didn't float. They didn't go anywhere. They were just on the water, and they were being used as prisons. Um, This... (laughs) Do we have to talk about why prisons don't exactly work? I know. that <laughs> We're not going to get deep into that, but... Um, Just know that there's an undercurrent yeah. here. There's an undercurrent. Okay. So in the early... Or er, in 1770, James Cook, who was a British explorer, he chartered and claimed possession of the east coast of Australia for Britain. They wanted to call dibs on Australia before the French did. So um, in... 1787, they sent the first fleet, capital F's, um, of 11 convict ships to Botany Bay, where they then founded Sydney, New New South Wales, which was the first European settlement on the continent. Mm. Just Sydney today. And the colonization begins Mm -hmm. in Australia. Um, exactly. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. So the first fleet. I'm sure if any Australian people are listening to this, this they I'm sure they like learn about this in school. Yeah. This is like Australian history 101. Right. Um, ah, sorry, my thing disappeared. Okay. So the first fleet had 11 ships that had two Royal Navy vessels, three store ships, and six convict transports carrying between 1,000 and 1,500 convicts, Marines, seamen, civil officers, and free people. So... It wasn't just convicts. They sent, like, a bunch of people over there. A huge variety, a a smattering of. If you will. And I will. Um, The fleet went left from England and went to Rio de Janeiro and then went to Cape Town and then landed in Party Bay. I know. I wouldn't think that that's the way they would go, but I guess. Maybe they had to drop people off in Rio. They were like, sorry, like, we're doing a spring break. Um, Actually, it's Carnival, so we're going to (laughs) stop by. The trip took around 250 days. That's almost a year. I know. Like, is that worth it? Is it worth it? Can you guys more closer? <laughs> kind of like Amsterdam? Um, okay. So the majority of convicts were transported for petty crimes. 
Right. No. Yeah. They Crim- weren't even violent. Criminal justice things back in the Dizay were cuckoo. Like you. I mean, you've seen Lame or you know Lame is. Yeah. He stole a loaf of bread. I broke a window pane, and they're like twenty years in jail. And yeah. You're like, oh, excuse me. So one in seven of these comics were women, and a lot of them were political prisoners. And on the first ship, it said that there was a seventy-year-old lady who stole a piece of cheese, and that's why she was sent to Australia on, like, a year-long journey to get there. These things happen in America to this day, folks. You can Google it. Uh, More serious crimes were punishable by death, so there was no need to transport those people to Australia. Oh, convenient. By the 1770s, there were 222 crimes in Britain which carried the death penalty, almost all of which were crimes against property. Christ. So not even, like... That serious, but right. I guess serious at the time. People were the really ro- into their property. They right. were obsessed the ro- with their property. Yeah, the ruling it's class like... hates poor people. That's what it is. Uh, so event the death penalty started laws like they started to get overturned, um, and and they considered it more humane to ship people to Australia. Oh, convenient. I don't know about that. Yeah, uh, two hundred fifty day journey over there where you're like on the bottom of a freaking ship. I know, sitting in your own piss. Ugh. So the first fleet went over. There was a high mortality rate. Like, a lot of them died because there was a lot of food shortages. The ships only carried enough food to provide for the settlers until they could establish agriculture in Australia. But because there wasn't enough skilled farmers or domesticated livestock, uh, there wasn't, like, they didn't have a booming agriculture. Hello. So everyone was (laughs) starving. They're like, well, it's okay. We'll just wait for the second ship, the second fleet to get here. Cool. Then the second fleet come, and the second fleet's a shit show. (laughs) Uh, there were a thousand convicts on board. One quarter of them died during the voyage, and then forty percent of the rest were dead within six months of arrival in Australia because they all got so sick on the boat. And they came to Australia. Then they were supposed to come here and help the first fleet, but instead they came with just like a boatload of bunch of sick, dying people. <laughs> Made things way worse. Um, yeah, so a bunch of people died. So they're like, okay, we'll just wait for the third fleet to get here. So the third fleet had 11 ships that had convicts, military personnel, and notable people, in quotations, sent to fill high positions in the colony. But more importantly, it carried a bunch of provisions, and then they kind of, like, got their shit together after the third fleet. Okay. Okay. Um, Okay. So this is an article from History.com called Life in the Penal Colony. This is a quote. Although not confined behind bars, most convicts in Australia had an extremely tough life. The guards who volunteered for duty in Australia seemed to be driven by exceptional sadism. Even small violations of the rules could result in a punishment of 100 lashes by the cat o' nine tails. It was said that blood was usually drawn after five lashes, and convicts ended up walking home in boots filled with their own blood. That is, if they were able to walk at all. Oh. So you're telling me you send a bunch of guys to Australia and tell them that they have to, like, watch over these convicts, that they're going to turn into super violent, like, power-hungry sadist? Shocking. Men. Um, okay. <laughs> At the end of the convict's sentence, which was usually around seven years, so you send them over there for seven years, like, come on. It's not worth it. Seven years isn't that long no. of a sentence. Nope. I mean, it, obviously, if you're serving it, it is, but the whole thing just seems... Ridiculous, yeah. Yeah. Uh, They were issued a certificate of freedom, and then they could either – some of them could become settlers in Australia. Some could return to England. Some couldn't return to England. Um, And then convicts who misbehaved or tried to escape did not get the certificate of freedom, and they were sent to secondary punishment places um, where they would suffer additional punishment and solitary confinement. God. And one of these places was Norfolk Island. This is supposed to be one of the worst places for the prisoners to go. 
They were gagged during the ride over, and then once they got there, they had to carry their own provisions to land on their back, which was usually bloody and infected from all the flogging. Christ, on a cracker. Records show that one prisoner named Michael Burns was lashed by guards 2,000 times. One of his infractions was singing, which would cost him up to 100 lashes. The tune was a patriotic Irish song that the English may have viewed as treasonous. <sighs> yeah. Um, they had to do back-breaking labor. There were no, like, free people on Norfolk Island, so they were just all, like, working constantly, doing, like, work for the government. Um, and it was all really intense labor. Some would cut off their toes to get out of it. Yeah. And then there's also stories of suicide pacts that were made. So modern scholars say that these stories might not be true, but they are, like, well-known. And the, the myth theory is that uh, prisoners would, like, draw straws, and whoever draw the shortest straw got to be killed by one of the pris- another prisoner. And then the prisoner who killed them, like, had to trans-style, had to trans-style, stand trial for murder, so they would get to leave Norfolk Island and, like, stand trial for murder to at least get out of there. So that's what these people were doing. But you wanted to be the one who got the short straw and just got killed. This reminds me of, um, I was listening to the last podcast on the left's series about Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. And the prison where uh, Clyde was sent when he was, like, 19 or 20 or something is, like, very similar to this. Like, truly, people were, like, cutting off limbs, fingers, toes, everything to get out of there because the wardens at the prison were so sadistic. Yeah. And they would do anything to just, like, beat the shit out of you and, like, hurt you and torture you. Well, there's no one being held accountable either. Right. Like, they're all just on this island doing whatever right. the hell they want. Right. Yeah, like, Bonnie or Clyde got sent for, like, getting caught stealing chickens or something. You know, like, and it's like, what the fuck? Yeah. No, it's effed. Okay. Um, so one of Norfolk's final commandments was a guy named John Giles Price, a jerk mm-hmm. named John Giles Price, and he prided himself on being especially cruel and violent. He invented a device used for punishment, a cage that surrounded the head with a prong that fit into the mouth, restricting breathing and making swallowing impossible. He also had a tiny cell that he called the nunnery that he would stuff dozens of men into at the same time. And a lot of them would, like, pass out from the heat and the smell because there was just, like, one toilet in there. God, I like, but, I don't understand how people can be so cruel to other people. Well, he got his because he left Norfolk and he started working at one of the hulks instead, which is one of those prison ships. And he approached um, the hundreds of laborers with a small group of guards, but the convicts all started to close in around him and his guards like left him and he tried to escape, but the convicts hit him with a rock. Um, and I feel bad calling them convicts. That's just what they're more just like prisoners yeah (laughs) yeah um but they hit him with a rock and he collapsed and then they tore him apart and he died bye yeah oh god God. goodbye Um, but he happened to die like right around the time the penal system ended in australia okay um other colonies penal colonies were also established in tasmania and queensland um south australia and victoria remained free colonies the penal transportation peaked in the 1830s and lasted until 1868 in some areas. So it didn't all end at the same time. Like mm-hmm. some cities were free. Like it started in Eastern Australia and then moved. Then it ended there and then it like was in Western Australia for about two, like 20 more years after it had ended in Eastern Australia. But it finally all ended in the 1860s. So over this period, approximately 50,000 criminals were transported from Great Britain to Australia. Over 164,000 um, were transported 
were transported, including one sent from other countries like Wales, Ireland, and Scotland. So it wasn't just Great Britain, but it was the majority, like 70% was from Great Britain or something. So how did it end? Um, By the mid-1830s, more and more free settlers were entering New South Wales and Tasmania, and they saw the convicts as competition to honest free laborers and as a source of crime and vice within the colony. There was what's called the anti-transportation movement, and they weren't really worried about the inhumanity of the system, but rather the negative effect it was believed to inflict on the free middle class. Um, It didn't stop in all of Australia at once. Um, because some people liked the free labor. So They're working for the yeah. bourgeoisie. But really, they wanted it. So, yeah, they didn't even care about how fucked it was. They just thought, they were like, well, we don't want any more convicts anymore because it's like they're taking our jobs and committing crimes. Oh. Sound fun. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. happy days. One, two girls, one crossword. <laughs> um, in 1850, the Australian Anti-Transportation League was formed to lobby for the permanent cessation of transportation and it ended for good in 1968. Okay, so after it ended, um, convictism still carried a social stigma. And some, and for some later Australians, the nation's convict origins instilled a sense of shame and cultural cringe. So I never heard that term, cultural cringe, hmm. but it's an internalized inferiority complex that causes people in a country to dismiss their own culture as inferior to the cultures of other countries. Interesting. Yeah. Um, However, since the 20th century, attitudes have changed. It's now considered cool to have a convict (laughs) in your lineage. Around 20% of modern Australians are descended from transported convicts. And the convict area has inspired famous novels, films, other cultural works. For example, Abel Magwitch, who's the main character from Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, Hmm. is a convict. Hmm. Um, I took this from a website called theconversation.com, an article, The Story of Australia's Last Convicts. And they point out that um, the impact, like even though now uh, like it's seen as kind of quote-unquote cool and the convicts were all freed, the impact of transportation could last a life, could and did last a lifetime. Many convicts were left struggling with unemployment, personal relationships, and alcoholism. Many reoffended for decades after they were freed in Australia, but only committed low-level nuisance and public order offenses, mainly drunkenness and vagrancy rather than serious crimes. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's not shocking that right, no. they were effed. But there are a lot. I want to bring that up because that shouldn't be forgotten because now there's a lot of prisoners who have kind of gotten a celebrity status in Australia because they mm. went on to do, like, cool things afterwards. But should not be forgotten all the people that were royally effed. Mm. Okay, so James Squire, he was a first fleet convict and um, – these are just a couple examples. Mm-hmm. And he was Australia's first brewer and cultivator of hops. Cool. Nice. Um, and then Mary Ryby, she was uh, transported for stealing a horse. <laughs> um, Which is fucking wild. I love it. Then she became free and she became a successful businesswoman and charitable benefactor. And she is now honored on the Australian $20 bill. Dude. Yeah. So thank you, Mary. And that's my convicts in Australia. Love it. Great yeah. topic. Cool. Um. Yeah, I really like that topic. It makes me sad because I think about how um, these people were disenfranchised their entire lives, you know, after they were potentially freed. And I think about, like, how communities are built on people coming. Free labor. Or, no, people are – so you're, like, released from jail or, like, your family is, like, torn apart through being people sent – from people being sent to jail and, like, how that affects you and your ancestors for the rest of time. Yeah. Um, And, I mean, I don't know. Just, you know, think about – 
the world today. And Yeah, you probably shouldn't put people on a boat and send them to a different country. Right. <laughs> or you shouldn't just put people in prison for low-level crimes. <laughs> yeah. You know? Or whatever. We're, I can't talk about the prison system <laughs> Yeah, here. this is like a whole... But that's but it just it just made topic, me it but. made me think about that and things and so I would I would implore the listeners to Google <laughs> some things about the American justice system especially the jailing here anyway okay cool cool your turn my turn okay my turn my topic hello um, I have my topic from the incubator crossword as well Patty Varrell from September twenty sixth thirty nine across islands known for cable pattern sweaters oh I thought you were gonna do the fun home one. Interesting. No. That would be hard to do, I guess, because that's just about a book. So it, it, yeah. But we could talk about the author. Or graphic novels. Yes. <laughs> Anyways, you guys have no idea what we're talking about, but <laughs> I was convinced that Chelsea was going to do this one topic, but you surprised me. All right. Ooh, Let's learn about so, islands. Yes. Okay. So um, the Aran Islands are a group of three islands located at the mouth of Galway Bay on the west coast of Ireland. I've been there. Have you been to the Aran Islands? Or no, to I've been to Galway Bay. Okay. Can you... Spell Aran Islands. A-R-A-N. Okay. Islands. Um, I have not been to Galway Bay. The f- Oh, you haven't? No. I f- <laughs> when I was in Ireland, I flew into Shannon, which is just south of Galway. Yeah. Well, just south of. I mean, in the grand scheme of the universe, they're practically on top of each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. So I've never been. But I really am interested in the Aran Islands because um, we'll you'll find out. Um, so the three islands. Total, an area of about 18 square miles. So it's very, very tiny. Yeah. Um, and they include Innismore, which is the largest, Inishman, which is the second largest, and Inishir, which is the smallest. And then they have a total of approximately 1,200 inhabitants. Wow. Like permanent residents. That's like my high school. Right, exactly. <laughs> Not even. That's smaller than my high school. Yeah. Um, and so they primarily speak Irish, and though they are also fluent in English. And this, I, the islands, the group of islands, belong to the Gaeltoc. The Gaeltoc um, are, like, districts where the government recognizes that the Irish language is the prominent vernacular or the language of the home. So there are these, like, little communities sprinkled throughout Ireland. The Aran Islands are one of them where, like, they only speak Irish. Mm-hmm. So, like, business, school, um, government, all of that is conducted in Irish. Like, the televisions, like, the radio stations, all of that is in Irish, which is really cool. Um, the Gaeltoc districts were first officially recognized during the 1920s when Ireland became the Irish Free State um, following the Gaelic Revival, which was um, included in government policy aimed at restoring the Irish language. So Ireland gained dominion status in 1921 and finally achieved full freedom from Great Britain in 1937 and became the Republic of Ireland. Um, And the Gaelic Revival was in the late 19th century, um, and it was a national renewed interest in the Irish language and Gaelic culture, um, which started with the formation of a bunch of different Gaelic societies to kind of promote Irish language and Irish culture. Um, The Ulster Gaelic Society was one of the first, was formed in 1830. Then there was like a literary society called Oceanic Society in 1853. Then the Society of the Preservation of the Irish Language, which was in 1876. And the Gaelic League, which is still around today, was formed in 1893. Damn, they were on top of their (laughs) They were. So the Gaelic League is really cool because they were responsible for um, having Irish put back into the school curriculums. And Mm -hmm. so like if you are born in Ireland and you go to the schools there, you 
learn Irish in school. Whether or not you retain any of it is on you, just like we're taught Spanish here and yeah. whether or not you retain it. Um, we have a friend who was born or he was lived in Ireland for a time and he took Irish in school mm-hmm. and he's not very good at it, but he remembers taking it. Yeah. Um, so why did Irish, the Irish language decline um, in terms of speaking it? So the history of Ireland is long and complicated, but it was at a point in history colonized by Great Britain, and because of that, it was anglicized from a very early point. Basically, Man, from the Great Britain just caused a lot of issues. <laughs> fucking assholes. Um, so that was that was one of the main factors was the Anglo anglicization anglicization sure um, of the country. The Catholic Church, which is the the like religion in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, supported using English over Irish. Oh, my God. Don't even get me started. <laughs> right, which is part of the campaign. We've talked about this multiple times in previous episodes to, like, erase culture. Yeah. Like when you talked about um, with the indigenous people in uh, Alaska. Yeah. You know, you take kids away from their family. You take away their – you don't teach them their language. You teach them English, and you teach them all about English culture. Yeah, and that was a lot of missionaries, too. So Right. And so that's basically – that happened in Ireland. Um the upper classes stopped speaking Irish, and then it started becoming, like, a class thing. So, like, the upper class spoke English, and only the poor spoke Irish. Yeah. Um, so then there is, like, as from the 1750s onwards, bilingualism was huge because people needed to communicate with the English that were there. They needed to understand what was happening in church. And because of this bilingualism, um, grandparents who only spoke Irish were now having grandchildren that spoke Irish and English, and then those grandchildren having ki- kids and maybe only teaching them English. Yeah. And so that's kind of how, like, you know, language can shift. Um, the English also prohibited the teaching of Irish in school. Oh, wow. So, you know, LOL. And then a huge <laughs> one was during the Great Famine, there was mass emigration to the U- U.S. and Canada. And so Eng- learning English was increasingly important because people needed to like move to these places to survive and they needed to learn English. Um, And so those are just like a couple of the many things that, you know, helped remove the Irish language. Um, Irish is now the constitutional um, and national first language of the Republic of Ireland and a minority language in Northern Ireland. And it is claimed to be understood by around approximately uh, one in four people. So that's approximately 1.7 million on the island of Ireland. Okay. And estimates of fully native Irish language speakers range from 40,000 up to 80,000 people. Because a lot of people in Ireland can understand Irish or speak it to some extent, but are not fully. Yeah. Whatever. There's also this thing, which I thought was interesting. There was a 20-year strategy for that. It's called the 20-year strategy for the Irish language 2010 to 2030. Um, And it was a 20-year strategy launched by the government in Ireland on the 20th of December 2010, which would end in December 2030, and the aim was to increase the number of daily Irish speakers in Ireland to 250,000 by 2030. So in 2011, the census said that 77,185 people spoke Irish daily, Mm -hmm. and by 2016, the number had actually dropped to 73,803. So I don't know if it's actually working. Yeah. (laughs) but be having the opposite effect. Yeah. But I think it's really cool that Ireland... A huge chunk of Ireland gains it gains its independence. They really want to revitalize the culture, mm-hmm. and so they like try to do all these things to get the culture and the language 
you know, moving and grooving again. Um, a lot of that doesn't happen. You yeah. Know? You know, these things get wiped off the face of the planet. Um, and so, yes, the reason I was talking about this is because in Gale Talks, that's where they speak Irish mainly. Mm-hmm. And approximately 2.1% of Ireland's populations live in these Gale Talk communities. Okay. And yes, the Aran Islands are a Gale Talk. <gasps> where it they all sp- comes together. Where they speak Irish. So let's talk about the islands. Each of the three islands are characterized by bleak karst, which is limestone. Mm-hmm. So they have like a limestone um, base. Yes. And I was doing a lot of research. The geology of these islands and in particular um, County Clare in Ireland apparently has a huge – it's like a very interesting geological makeup from like 250 million or 250,000 years ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um it was a little too dense for me, but it has to do with the <laughs> But lime- it exists out there. Yeah, but it has to do with the limestone, which is cool. And apparently it used to be like an uh, like an underground, like um, not uh, jungle yeah. type environment or underwater jungle environment, like back 250,000 years ago. And I was like, that's fucking cool. Anyway, so it's made up of limestone. There's a bunch of flat, gray, rocky plains rising out of the ocean. They have sheer cliff faces. So when you see pictures of Ireland, you see, like, those sheer yeah. cliff faces. Those are popular, not popular, prominent <laughs> in the Aran Islands. Everyone loves them. And it's also known for having these green fields divided by stone walls um, and whitewashed cottages and thatched roofs. So it has that very, like, when you think of, as an American, you're sitting here, you're like, think of Ireland. You think of, like tons of fields with sheep and low stone walls and cottages with yeah. like that's what the Aran Islands are which is really cool um, the climate is very similar to the rest of Ireland wet windy a little cold a little hot um, and they are only accessible by boat um, and of the three islands Inishmore has the largest population of approximately 840 permanent residences residents Inishman which is the smallest island um which has the smallest population of 160, is the middle island. hundred. They almost know everything about everyone. Yeah, and Inishir, which is the smallest island, has a population of 300, approximately. Oh, my gosh. I know. It's very tiny. What's dating like on the island? I can't even imagine. I know. Well, you have to have, like, two options that are your age. <laughs> they talk about how, um, right now, it's, like, a lot of older people that live there, and, like, the the, the young children that are born there tend to, like, leave at the age of 18. Well, I mean, and they're some probably people... related to, like, half of the people their age. Right. And then... <laughs> they have to... If you want to, like, live on the... I feel like if you want to, like, live on the island, there's not that many people there that are, like, born and raised there, and you can, like, marry them. You have there's... to bring an outsider. Right. You have to, like... Have you ever seen Midsummer? Oh, my God. You have to go to, like, uni, meet someone, and bring them back. Yeah. Want to move to my island of 300 people. <laughs> Um, okay. The islands were probably originally covered by forest, but have since, like, all these trees have been cut down. They used to use it for fuel. Um, and nobody really knows much about how the first inhabitants arrived on the Aran Islands, but people guess that the first peoples populated the islands in 3000 BC and are likely to have come from the mainland tribes or clans of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Stone Age and megalithic monuments on all three of the islands, and there's a wedge tomb that's dated to 2500 BC. Um, it's, called, it's found at Corrick, which is in Inishmir. Um, and these wedge tombs are traditionally the types of structures known as Lebda Dirmada Agus Grania, 
um, which is the bed of Dermot and Grania, which is a reference to the young couple who mythology tells slept at these sites on their journey around Ireland, which is, I think, like a famous Irish, like, folk story. Yeah. Um, and all there's a bunch of these wedge tombs on all three of the islands, which is interesting. Spooky. Yes. So the O'Briens, which are a dynasty formed um, in the 10th century, were a clan known to have controlled much of County Clare during medieval Ireland. And County Clare is where Galway is, and that's where the Aran Islands are. Mm-hmm. Um, and records show substantial payments in wine to clans from the Galway city in return for keeping shipping routes in and out of the city free from piracy. So it's people assume that the O'Brien clan lived on the Aran Islands for a time. Um, and I also read somewhere that Queen Elizabeth II is a descendant of the O'Brien clan and that her great her eighth great grandmother was an O'Brien on her mother's side. I cannot confirm nor deny Wait, this. Queen Elizabeth the... the second, the current Queen okay. Elizabeth. Yeah, which is interesting. Yeah. Well, it's weird that she would be Irish. Yes, it would be weird. I guess not that weird because it's close, you know. Right. They're well, all close together. Yeah, and in the 15th century or in the 1500s, so the 16th century, right? Yes. The math. That's not even math. Um, That's when the Cromwellian um, colonialization happened in Ireland. Okay. So the British came. People were mixing and matching, knocking boots and taking names. Taking names. Um, So in folklore, the famous forts on the island are said to have been built by the Firbolgs. Firbolgs? I don't even know how to say it. Uh, Which was a Celtic tribe who invaded Ireland from from Europe in prehistoric times. So the Irish have... Um, a book of poems called um, The Book of the Taking of Ireland. Mm -hmm. And it's a collection of poems and prose that narrates uh, to be the history of Ireland and the Irish from the creation of the world to the Middle Ages. And that's where that um, Firbolg myth comes from. Mm -hmm. So Christianity reached the islands um, around the 5th century. And some of the earliest monastic settlements founded by St. Edna are on the islands. Um, Edna appears to have been an Irish chief who converted to Christianity, spent some time studying in Rome, and then came back and, like, hung out on the islands. And um, there's a bunch of churches there from St. Edna, so you can, like, go and see, which is crazy to think, like, the 5th century, like, there are churches that exist oh, yeah. in the world, and they're on that, those islands. Um, like I said, the O'Briens and potentially the O'Flaherty's ruled the islands until the English military garrison was built there um, in the 16th century. Um and so people, another theory of, like, how the population grew, LOL, grew on the islands was during the Cromwellian conquest uh, in the mid, uh, what is it, 17th century, um, Cromwell arrived, mm-hmm. and the ca- Catholic population had the choice of either, quote, going to hell or to Connacht, um, which basically means they were like, okay, so... The English arrived on the east coast of Ireland and pushed the native people west into the province of Connacht. And Connacht is where um, the county Galway is. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the Aran Islands are. And so that's why people think that the English arrived, pushed all the native people west, and they said to hell or to Connacht so they could go to and live in Connacht. It's like on a reservation type thing. And so that's what people like fled hopped in boats and went over to the islands to, like, get rid of the English. Yeah. Um, And up until the 1930s, 
uh, people wore traditional Aran dress on the islands, bright red skirts, black shawls for women, baggy woolen trousers and waistcoats, colorful belts called croy, um, and the classic heavy creamed colored Aran sweater knitted in complex patterns originated there and is still hand knitted on the islands. Um, the islands. The islands. Did I say islands? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's where the sweater comes from. Yeah. So things to see and do. A ton of forts. Um, you like forts? Yeah. Go which, to the Aran Islands. Yeah. They're basically like these ancient stone forts from like the 700s, which you've is You've seen cool. one fort. You see them all. The O'Brien Castle is on Inishir. It's on the top of, uh, on a top hill, the southern side of the island. And it's a three-story fort, I believe, or a three-story castle. It dates to the 14th century, which is cool. Then there's the cliffs. The cliffs of Inishmore stretch along the entire western side of Inishmore. Um, and they form like a really beautiful site. It's similar to the cliffs of the cliffs of Mahor. Yeah, um, they're actually kind of adjacent to each other because the cliffs are of Mahor are in Galway, and mm-hmm. the cliffs of Inishmore are on the islands in the same district. There's this thing called the wormhole. You can go to. It's a natural rectangular-shaped pool into which the sea ebbs and flows at the Ooh. bottoms of the cliff, that's and that's cool. actually where the Red Bull diving competitions are held, which is wild. Wait, people actually swim in there? Yeah, we'll dive. Oh, okay. I just feel like it's so scary because, like, you jump in and, like, what if you got pulled under? Yeah. Well, I don't like to be swimming, like, when waves are hitting you against right. giant no, cliffs. Not interested. Um, That's a... why I won't do the Red Bull diving competition. Oh, yeah. She was thinking about doing it last year, but I told do her. Do it in a, in, a, in a pool and then I'm there. Yeah. Um, there's a thing called the Seven Churches. It's situated on the west side of Inishmore. Um, and it's seven, it's basically seven church like ruins, one of them being St. Edna's Church. We talked about that. Other things to see are standing stones. Ireland's famous for their standing stones. Um, there's a, an old lighthouse that you can go see and puffing holes. Puffing holes are just like open holes in the rock and the cliff faces where, depending on the tide and the waves, it's like um, whales are puffing up water, like kind of spouts, Yeah, which is cool. Um, transportation. Ferries operate to all three islands from um, Roosevelt, which is another Gale talk, and Roosevelt is in Galway. Um, and flights used to be operated by Air Erin um, to the islands from Inveren, which is on the northeast side of Ireland. Um, and it actually, those flights stopped in September of this year. Oh. So no more flights. So like last month? Yeah. Well, so, convenient. Yep. Um, and so if you want to tr- get around on the actual island as a tourist they're just like okay rent bikes because yeah. whatever um but a road network exists on the islands and the speed limit is 50 kilometers per hour which is 31 miles an hour so you can't go any faster than 31 miles an hour with your car um ca- cars on the island are exempt to road exempt from road worthiness testing which is fun <laughs> um so yeah and they say like just hire bikes if you're coming to the island to visit um an interesting thing is the aaron Korak Korak. It's a small, lightweight boat, um, and it's made from canvas stretched over a skeleton of wood Mm -hmm. um, and then covered in tar, and it's designed to withstand very rough seas that are typical of the islands, Um, and these are used by the islanders to go from island to island, and they're also used to go and fish, Mm -hmm. Um, and they used to go like really out far into the Atlantic Ocean, and they used to travel between the islands. They don't do it so much anymore, um, because the boats, even though people say that they're really like non-destructible, they're very easy to be punctured. Yeah. And here's something I found. It is said that the Aran fishermen 
would not learn to swim since they would certainly not survive any sea that swamped a Curric, and so it would be better to drown quickly. Oh, wow. I don't know about that. Yeah. And so now they keep the boats boats in the shallows. (laughs) I guess if you knew you weren't going to, even if you could swim, you wouldn't be able to survive. Right. So it's like, well, why even try? Right. So. Yeah. Well, think smarter, not harder. (laughs) Right. So the clue from the puzzle was about the Aran Island sweater, also known as the Aran Island jumper or the Gainsey Iran. Gainsey means sweater. Um, They're famous. I mean, Apparently, if you go to Ireland, you see the sweaters. People say that they're the, the Aran jumpers, the Aran sweaters. Mm-hmm. Um, they're an off-white in color, cable patterns on the body and sleeves. Um, they were originally knitted using unscoured wool that retained natural oils, which made the garments water-resistant and meant they were um, wearable even when wet, which is great for the islands because the islands were predominantly fishermen. Yeah. Um, so it's told in, like, lore, that Mm -hmm. these are, like, ancient crafts passed down for centuries and centuries on the islands. And most historians nowadays say that that's a big friggin' myth um, made up by one guy on the island who, like, wanted to sell more sweaters. Um, Classic. Consumerism. Yeah. The Aran knitting was invented as recently as the 1890s and early 1900s. Um, The congested district explorers sought to improve fishing industry on the islands. Um, So fishermen and their wives from other regions um, helped train the islanders in better fishing. And also they brought uh, traditional knitting um, to the islands. Mm -hmm. So the Aran jumpers are very similar similar to the Guernsey jumpers, which are the famous seamen's sweaters, like the blue sweaters with the gold buttons that you see. Yeah. So... People say that fishermen from other regions came to the Aran Islands, taught the fishermen how to fish better, and, and also they taught were the like, ladies Wait, I like how your to sweater. Yeah, let me make some of my own. Um, so it is said that the very first sweater that was commissioned from the island dated to 1932. Mm-hmm. So people were making them on the island, but they started selling them commercially in 1932. Not that long um, ago. No, it's not. And the first commercially available knitting pattern was published in the 40s. And then Vogue magazine carried articles on the garment starting in 1950s. Um, and then, and also in the 1950s, exports of the garment from the islands to the United States began. So, yeah. Cool. I'm, I need to look up a picture of this now. Yeah, they're really cute. Um, I actually had one and then... It got put into the wash. Oh, wait. Is this the one that, like, then was tiny? Yes. <laughs> I had Matt. Matt was doing the laundry, and he picked up my wool sweater and put it in the wash in the dryer, and it became smaller than, like, what a child could potentially wear. Yeah, exactly. These are what they look like. But then it was, like, it for, was like for, for a baby. It was, for like, a tr- like, a small, small baby. Oh, my gosh. I don't like wool sweaters, I have to say. Not... The way they look, I just get so itchy and wool. I don't understand how people people love wool sweaters. They drive me crazy. No, I the they're so so itchy. I have to find a way to wear them, and that makes my skin not. Itch. I have to wear like a full turtleneck underneath. Right. I mean, if you're gonna be like outside, a full turtleneck and a wool sweater, okay, fine. Like if I'm like know. hiking over the moors, sure. Yeah, if I'm fishing off the Aran Islands, but I'm usually not doing that <laughs> on the weekend. So so basically, I'm moving to the Aran Islands now. Cool. Sound good? All right. Well, we'll do, be doing the podcast remotely from now on. Um, Thanks for, yeah. for everything, guys. Thanks for coming along this journey. We're almost at 20 episodes. Can you believe? So please uh, 
leave reviews and five stars. Um, Come talk to us on Twitter and yeah. Instagram. We love you guys. We're having fun. On Twitter, we're at the Good Eve Girls. And on Instagram, we're the Good Evening Girls. And yeah, I'm Grace. And I'm Chelsea. And we'll talk to you later. We will. We will. We love you. XOXO. XO. Wow. <laughs>